droughts, famines, bushfires, floods, COVID-19. Is God angry with us? Is God punishing us? Should we be seeking the face of the Lord in order to know what to repent of, in order that this plague might depart from us and the land be healed? These questions were raised by the text that we examined this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. These questions were raised but not answered. So this is a second sermon, uh, really, on this morning's text, aiming to answer the question left unanswered this morning. Um, A very quick recap. The people of Israel experience famine for three consecutive years. David understands from this that there is something wrong, and so he prays, asking God, why? And God reveals to him an historic wrong, which must be righted, a matter of outstanding injustice that must be made right. The man who did the wrong thing has actually died. So seven men, two sons and five grandsons of the guilty man, are put to death on his behalf, standing in his place. Then God once again answered prayer, and we see in the text, rains came down, problem solved. But as noted in the earlier sermon, this text arouses considerable offence for us, for a number of different reasons. It is quite troublesome and offensive, really, to both the modern and postmodern mind. What we see, we do not recognise as justice. And what we would recognise as justice is ignored or unseen in the text itself. And I attempted to answer many such questions as those in the earlier sermon. But what about the question of God punishing people through natural disasters, including but not limited to plague and famine? Well, um, what about questions are inherently vague. So let's uh, be a little bit more specific. Really, that question uh, is um, two questions. Firstly, is it acceptable to advance a spiritual explanation for a physical phenomenon, or is that just plain silly? Secondly, assuming the acceptability of explaining physical things Spiritually, how might we as Christians link natural disasters to the gospel message that we have in Jesus Christ? Recently, I was watching a documentary about uh, Antony and Cleopatra. Cleopatra, as you might know, was Queen of Egypt in the century before Jesus was born. She died about 30 years before Jesus was born, and she was the very last Pharaoh of Egypt. And she was Pharaoh at a key moment in history. Egypt was, at the beginning of her reign, one of the world's leading superpowers. Rome uh, Rome was, of course, becoming more and more powerful as a military power and as an empire. But Rome needed Egyptian grain. 
Egyptian wit. Although Cleopatra was not considered particularly beautiful, she was somehow nevertheless desperately attractive, and she had affairs both with Julius Caesar and uh, also with Mark Antony. But things went wrong, and eventually she committed suicide. As this uh, SBS documentary explained, a major part of her downfall began with a massive volcanic eruption in Central America, probably in Nicaragua, literally on the other side of the world, about 12,000 kilometers away. Did uh, Cleopatra know about this volcanic eruption? No, of course not. She had no idea. Although she and probably millions of others uh, uh, like her noticed that for some months the sun was darkened at sunset and the moon was turned to blood. Portentous signs of something. Well, there was a lot of dust in the air. In fact, there was enough volcanic dust in the air to fractionally cool the planet. Barely noticeable, but enough to decrease evaporative water loss from the Arabian Sea, that body of water between India and Arabia at the top of the Indian Ocean. Less evaporation meant less monsoonal rain falling over Ethiopia. And that means that the Nile failed to do something that it usually did. Usually, not always, but regularly enough to make Egypt very rich. The Nile failed to do something that it usually did, and that was flood the Nile Delta. No seasonal flooding in the Nile Delta meant not just a lack of water for irrigation, but also no new fertilizing deposits of silt. And without the silt, without the fertilizer, without the water, you had crop failure. And with crop failure, famine. And with famine, very, very hungry, angry peasants. If there's nothing to eat in the countryside, then the farmers and the farm workers start to stream into the cities. Resources in the cities are stretched to breaking point. All those people, it means um, disease, dysentery and cholera and typhoid fever. So a drought leads to famine, which leads to plague, which inevitably leads to war. And to the common man or woman in the street, the meaning of these things across the ancient world was obvious. These rulers aren't, our rulers aren't doing their job, which is to manage the moods of the gods and goddesses. Divine displeasure has been provoked by our leaders, and therefore they have to go. Thus, for Cleopatra, in keeping with the thinking of her age, famine means regime change. And she knew she had to go. And she did. According to the thinking of her age, she, she did the decent thing and stage-managed the, the exit for herself. Now, with respect to that SBS documentary, the commentator, with, uh, with a certain degree of smugness, actually, the, the commentator, as perhaps you might well imagine, the commentator spoke about how we now know better. Uh, it's not that the gods were angry with Cleopatra. How silly, how primitive. No, it was all about climate change. It was all about a volcano 
12,000 kilometers away. Now we know better. But actually, the commentator was being just as naive. You see, modern people, modern people think that when it comes to explaining things, the, the material or physical or natural answer, or the scientific answer, that's the right one, that's the one that holds all the power. In the same way, pre-modern people thought that the spiritual answer was the right answer, the answer that held all the power. And, and today, actually, postmodern people think that it is the political answer that is the right one. It's all uh, about motives and power plays. It's the political answer that holds all the power. But in actual fact, of course, multiple answers can be true and right simultaneously. The natural answer, the supernatural answer, the political answer, the psychological answer, the socio-biological answer. Many different answers can be true simultaneously, each within their magisteria, which is to say, each within its own area of authority. And to put that a little bit more simply, um, if you were to ask me, why is the kettle on? Why is the kettle boiling? And I explain to you the mechanics of electrical switches and how they work and how they operate and um, how that leads to boiling water. You might feel very frustrated with me if the answer you were looking for was actually, oh, our friends have just arrived. Or perhaps, I feel the need for a cup of tea. The scientific answer was right, it just wasn't the one that was needed. No, in that situation, perhaps you were looking for the social or psychological uh, explanations, um, which were also correct, but failed, would fail at other levels to explain the phenomenon of boiling water in a kettle. Well then, uh, returning to our text, there is... Returning to our text this morning, there, there was no, there could be no reasonable scientific connection between a wartime atrocity committed under the leadership of a long dead king, that is King Solomon, and a three year drought, some 30 years later or more. Nor could there be any rational or reasonable connection between the death of seven men on a hillside and the breaking of that drought several weeks later. And as Western Christians, we feel this tension. In, indeed, uh, some years ago, I, I listened to my radio as a senior pastor from uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, uh, one of the churches there. She was asked to explain why, in her opinion, that city had been devastated by several serious and terrible earthquakes. Well, in answering the question, she spoke about plate tectonics and chance and random events, and she portrayed these earthquakes as a random, natural phenomenon that just happens. And in providing precisely the same explanation of the phenomenon as any geologist could have given, that pastor gave, as far as I was concerned, a spectacular demonstration of dereliction of duty. She hadn't answered the question. She told us how earthquakes happen, but she refused to even have a go at answering why. 
she'd sidestepped the most important question of all, the meaning of earthquakes. No, no, as as Christians, we hold the pre-modern view that indeed the spiritual answer, the spiritual explanation, is ultimately the most important and most powerful explanation that there is. However, unlike pre-moderns, we also know that the spiritual explanation is almost never the only explanation. So, really, what is the answer? Well, the, the answer is God. And if you need to be more specific, the answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is Lord of heaven and earth. And responsibility for earthquakes is ultimately and entirely his. You see, the Bible teaches us that right at the beginning, there is a deep and profound connection between three entities, a triangle of relationships, a trinity of relationships, if you like, between God and humanity, and between humanity and the earth, or the creation, and between God and his creation. The Bible knows that that we, humanity, that we're here for a reason to represent God in his likeness and in his image, working like him, working for him and working with him. And both God and his creation, they expect us to be earth keepers and stewards, intercessors and servants, rulers and justice makers. When though, in Genesis 3, one of those relationships was broken, then so too are the other two relationships. In the Old Testament, there is therefore a predictable relationship between increasing sin and increasing environmental degradation and ecological collapse. Sometimes there may be observable and easily discerned natural explanations for this environmental degradation, selfishness, greed, exploitative attitudes, the needs of others being ignored. And that obviously leads to environmental collapse. But at other times, there is no easily discernible natural explanation for what's going on in the environment. But but we know correctly that it is really the supernatural explanation, the spiritual explanation, that truly shows us what we have here. This is an outworking of sin. Therefore, in our text this morning, David shows maturity and ability as a leader. He does what every leader must do. When trouble befalls his family, those God has given him to care for, he prays and he asks God, why? Why is this happening? Why is the most important question of all? And that David seeks a spiritual explanation is not evidence of his pre-modern mind, even though David is without doubt pre-modern in his worldview. No, rather it is evidence of his regenerate mind, a mind unclouded by sin. Well, uh, God's solution to our predicament 
is the incarnation, crucifixion, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In Christ, God is making all things new. In Christ, we have a new creation. By the blood of Christ, we have forgiveness of sins, the sure hope of eternal life, the gift of the Holy Spirit guaranteeing what is to come. We have in Christ, by the blood of Jesus, the authority of Christ in our ministry. And we have the future hope of a life with God in a redeemed and transformed cosmos. And all of this is rock steady. It is unshakable. But outside, outside of the kingdom of God, outside of the reign of Jesus Christ, everything continues to go toward destruction, eternal separation. There is no future hope except in Jesus. And so that's what's happening now. Uh, what's happening now is both things, destruction and salvation. Thus, like David, in, in his time seeking the face of the Lord and knowing authoritatively what was going on because God had spoken, so too, in the face of the global COVID-19 pandemic, we as Christians are uniquely placed to be able to answer precisely and accurately when people ask, why is this happening? We know why this is happening, because God has spoken. Let, let the scientists, the doctors, the virologists, the epidemiologists, let them answer the question, how has this happened? But we alone can answer, why has this happened? What is the meaning of COVID-19? And we alone can answer that question because we alone have the mind of Christ. So why is it happening? Well, simply put, this current international health crisis is the judgment of God. It is destruction and salvation both. COVID-19 is from God. And COVID-19 is from God and for Jesus. Colossians 1 verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, in the Son, in Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or authorities or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. This current international health crisis is the judgment of God. Destruction and salvation both. COVID-19 is from God and for Jesus. Let's now unfold that in nine points. Firstly, one, what is God doing? Well, God is shaking everything that can be shaken in order that that which cannot be shaken may be revealed. This is the age we live in. Hebrews 12, 26. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. 
the words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. And as he goes on to explain, we are inheriting a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jesus' kingdom is unshakable. It is rock steady. Everything else is going to pieces before our very eyes. This, This will only end, this process of both destruction and salvation will only end when Jesus finally comes. And it's the renewal of all things. And preparing uh, his disciples, Jesus preparing his disciples for living in this era in which we now find ourselves in. The era between the ascension of Jesus and his return. Jesus said from Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, Do not be alarmed, such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local synagogues and Sorry, you'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. The disciples, them, us, the disciples, we are to follow Jesus in a distinct age. An age characterised in particular by three things. Firstly, many will claim the authority to lead in opposition to the authority of Jesus Christ. We live in an age where most people don't and refuse to follow Jesus, even though he reigns and is king. Secondly, we live in an age of cosmic upheaval, human evil and natural disasters, an age of wars, international strife and tension, an age of competing ideologies, an age of earthquakes and famines and bushfires and droughts and floods and pandemics, an age where even the seas and the oceans disobey the God-given commandment to remain behind boundaries given them. And thirdly, we live in an age of persecution. The people of God will be tested by trials that come on all humanity, that is, the trials that I've just mentioned, earthquakes, etc., as well as trials that are specific only to them, experienced uh, by only them, but initiated by others. Persecution. All people will persecute the people of God for one reason or another, at one time or another. Continual persecution, yes, uh, uh, in other words, as a repeating characteristic, but not all of the time. Not continuous persecution, but continual persecution, yes, a, a, a constant repeating characteristic. COVID-19 is precisely what our Lord told us to expect. So then, for King David, a three-year drought and famine was a sign of covenantal unfaithfulness under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. It's not so for us. No, for us, natural disasters are a sign not of covenantal unfaithfulness, but simply of 
the times in which we live, these times that are called the last days. And COVID-19 is precisely what our Lord told us to expect. There is is no way to life except through repentance and turning back to God. There, There is no way to life except, both figuratively and literally speaking, there is no way to life except through death. Two. The judgment of God usually begins with the people of God, but it does not usually end there. Jesus was judged first on our behalf, suffering and dying on the cross. Judgment fell on his persecutors later. In speaking about our suffering, and in particular, in particular about suffering persecution as Christians, Peter writes, If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it is time, it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 1 Peter chapter 4. God is shaking the heavens and the earth so that all the unjesus like bits fall away. COVID-19 will make this world more Jesus-like by revealing un-Jesus-like practices, behaviours and attitudes. That judgment will start with us. We'll we'll be the first to be ridiculed for un-Jesus-likeness, wherever it may be found in us. But the the judgment will not finish there. Three. Testing times are signed off on by both God and Satan. They both think they are a good idea. Both God and Satan signed off on the death of Jesus on the cross. They both thought it was their own idea, although only one of them was right. Both God and Satan signed off on the destruction of Job's family, assets and health. Satan is delighted to inflict pain and suffering on human beings and thrilled when they curse God in response to his, not God's, activities. He knows that when we suffer, we'll be tempted to stop trusting God and look for some other solution. God, on the other hand, does not delight in pain, suffering, trials or tests. In in fact, Uh, uh, Christ teaches us to pray, save us from the time of trial and lead us not into temptation. But he knows that as we hold on to him through hard times, we'll see his faithfulness in a new light and experience his trustworthiness in new ways. Even though at times he allows us to suffer, he knows that we will know him even better as a saviour. If we decide in our hearts to trust him, despite the suffering, despite the fear. The the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Meanwhile, evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. God has specific things he wants to show you, me and us 
through this time of trusting him in circumstances most of us have never encountered before. Four, when the judgment of God comes, God usually uses evildoers and or evil things to discipline the righteous. This is perplexing, but just. The book of Habakkuk puts God on trial over this strategy, but it recognises its justice. God used the Assyrians to discipline Israel, and God used the Babylonians to refine Judah. Jesus was handed over to the wicked, to the godless, to Gentiles, to evildoers, in order to be put to death. COVID-19 is an evil thing. So was the cross. Fifthly, five, the judgment of God is usually ironic. God gives people what they want, not what they don't want. The, the Judeans wanted to serve foreign gods and bow down to them. Fine, let them get on with it. Off to battle on with a lot of them in order that they might that they might find out what it is like to serve strange gods in strange places. What was the uproar of 2019? Was it not Greta Thunberg and climate change? Remember the protests, the schools being closed, the students refusing to go to school. And remember the self-righteous indignation and anger. Surely God is answering, answering prayer. What's COVID-19 done to energy usage? What's COVID-19 done to crude oil prices? To pollution in Mexico City or in Beijing? Indeed, have you noticed the night sky here in Perth? The, the judgment of God is usually ironic, him giving us what we want, or at least what we think we want. Six, the judgment of God affects a separation, revealing who does and who doesn't belong to God. For the wicked, the judgment of God is a judgment unto condemnation because in response to hardship, they curse God in their hearts and revile him with their lips. Suffering, you see, it makes people either run to God or away from him. The righteous run to God in the face of suffering, repenting of their sins, begging his forgiveness, seeking compassion from the one they know is compassionate, from the one they know is the solution to their problems. The evil, on the other hand, run away from God, refusing to repent, cursing God in their hearts, reviling him with their lips, Revelation 16, finding in apparently unmerited and unjust suffering all the excuse they need to reject God as evil. For many, COVID-19 and its cruelty and injustice in its slaying of, of both young and old friends and loved ones, for many it is all the evidence they need to see that God doesn't exist or isn't loving or in the view of many atheists is both evil and non-existent. On the cross, unmerited, unjust suffering Jesus refused to curse, rather he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly.
He who suffered unjustly did not find therein excuse to rebel. 7. The judgment of God tests the people of God not as a judgment unto condemnation, but as a refining judgment. Jesus never sinned, but he was tempted in every way, and he was made perfect by what he suffered, learning to trust God in and through every situation, most perfectly at the cross, submitting indeed to death, death on a cross. In contrast, we tend to fail the test the first time round, um, even indeed maybe the second and the third time round, maybe even the seventh time round. But God compels us to reset the test until we get it right. Though the righteous may stumble seven times, they rise again. Indeed, a righteous person may stumble, but he or she will not fall because the Lord holds them up. We are like students sitting an exam who don't get to leave the examination hall until we hand in a, a perfect paper, until we realise that our teacher has written the answers for us on the board. Then he'll say to the righteous, well done, you got it. Thank you for feeding me when I was hungry, for welcoming in when I was alone, for visiting me in my prison, for taking care of me when I was sick, for clothing me in my destitution. How did you know to do that? 8. Therefore, the refining judgment of God is passed when people, when God's people trust, obey, praise and worship him, even in the face of hardship. Their trust in God is vindicated, and for them every curse is turned into a blessing. And having learned to trust God in times of crisis, they trust God more and more. They say, together with Joseph, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. Everybody knows that clouds have silver linings, but as God's people, we know that his victory over evil is such that we can count on blessings every time we encounter curses. We just have to hold on to him and he will vindicate us. Jesus was vindicated, raised by the Father on the third day. Father, you granted him his heart's desire and you have not withheld from him the request of his lips. He asked you for life and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Amen. Nine. The refining judgment of God resets the people of God as a blessing to the nations. In their passing of the test, there will be, there is massive societal change for the better. Oppression is lifted, things are made better as the people of God have been transformed and finally enabled to be both salt and light. On the cross, it was total sacrifice for both the Father and the Son, a meaningful act of total sacrifice motivated by love. And the reward, the victory, was eternal life and total global authority. Fulfilling the promise made to Abraham, blessing to the nations. In the same way, COVID-19 
will help us to do church better. Not meaning that the whole operation is going to go up to the next level in terms of slickness and smoothness as an internet sensation, but rather that one way or another, COVID-19 will help us to individually and corporately manifest Jesus and his love better. Sacrificial love, meaningful acts of kindness, Jesus and his priorities to the world around us, whether online or in person. In fact, obviously, both. COVID-19 will help us to be more like Jesus, better. So then, in summary, as Christians, we know that the spiritual explanation is the most powerful. People want to know why. We have the answer. God has spoken. COVID-19 is from God and for Jesus. The judgment of God as perfectly revealed in Jesus on the cross. As Christians, we know that God means it for our ultimate good, that more might know him as Saviour and Lord, and that we might know him better in the face of Jesus Christ, his Son. So then, two concluding thoughts. Firstly, the key is to trust God. The key is to trust God. That is a decision of the will. It's not a feeling. Indeed, the decision to trust God is most powerful when we are feeling anxious and afraid. But we must trust God because we know that God is trustworthy, holy, good, loving and present. He is with us. Second, let us not pray, Lord, please hurry up and make things just as they were before. Please return things to normal. Let's not pray that. No, rather, let's pray, dear Jesus, please hurry up and come. We know that this is the beginning of birth pains. Amen and amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And to the glory of God, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.